<clears throat> Good morning, Evergreen. Oh, I came just for that introduction, man. My goodness, that was so gracious of you. Jared, uh, I want to thank you and Ann for, um, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, you both uh, go over and above in sponsoring young, weird people like me. <laughs> and I'm really thankful for your ministry. You're one of the few people I know I can call it uh, nine at night, and, and my ministry's falling apart, and my worship leaders join the circus, and I'm pretty sure I still believe in God, and I can call you. And you're there for me, so thank you. Love you very much. Good morning. It's so wonderful to be with you. Um, it's a really special weekend for me. My wife had uh, her first um, her first baby shower yesterday, and she uh, she got just my mom just really spoiled her. So uh, it was really fun for her. And we're going to be having our first child uh, in August, and it's incredible the changes that your body goes through when you push a human out of it. <laughs> Isn't that? I've never done it, but I've heard it's quite changing. She, she oddly enough, her, most pregnant women have some form of like, you know, craving, and she loves, she never has before, yellow mustard. Of all things, she just loves yellow mustard. But she, she's also um, undergone significant, uh, as you can imagine, emotional ups and downs. And I knew she was pregnant about five weeks uh, after she was pregnant. I walked into our TV room, and she was weeping, and she was watching television. And I thought she was watching her favorite movie or something. And I walked in, and I said, are you okay? And she, tears streaming down her cute face. I said, are you okay? And <clears throat> she was watching a Folgers commercial. <laughs> And I knew that she was really pregnant when a week later we were driving down the road and I said, do you remember when you were crying at the Folgers commercial? And she starts to cry again <laughs> in our car. Goodness gracious. But no, it's an absolute joy to be able to share uh, Jesus with you this morning. Um, as we move forward, I want to invite you, we're going to be reading from the book of Acts this morning, chapter 20. If you happen to have your Bibles, we're going to be reading from that um, <clears throat> this morning. I, I, uh, I love Easter. Um, but I don't, I wish it was a day that we celebrated every day of the Christian calendar, um, but we don't. We celebrate it for one day, but the reality is we don't believe that Jesus uh, is still in the grave and that he wasn't there. We don't celebrate that Jesus came out of the grave just for one day and popped his head out and said, I'm here, but I'm going back in. We believe that he is still out of the grave. This morning, I want to talk about the power that Jesus provides for his people. This resurrection power that Christ chooses to pour onto the people who call themselves by his name. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight, because this guy is a preacher. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, and seated in a window was a young man by the name of Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on and on. Again, he's a preacher. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story. 
and was picked up dead. Paul went down, he threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he says, because you shouldn't be alarmed when somebody falls out of a window. He said, he's alive, don't, don't be concerned. Then he went upstairs again and he broke bread and ate. Notice in this story that there are two meals. After talking until daylight, he left and the people took the young man home alive and they were greatly comforted. The question I asked this morning is, I kind of wonder what he was preaching about that put so many people to sleep or at least this young boy to sleep. What do you think he was preaching about? I have some thoughts. You know, Luke, um, the guy who wrote this book, the book of Acts, Luke, a phenomenally interesting character. Luke was the gentleman who wrote not only the, the book, I call it the gospel of Acts, the story of the early church, but he also wrote the book of Luke, which is the story of, of the life, the ministry, and the teaching of Jesus and his eventual resurrection. Luke, when he wrote both of these books, it's almost like he did it intentionally hand in hand. Like the first one you think is all about Jesus and then the second one acts is about the church. But I actually disagree with that. I think Luke, when he wrote it, it was like he was saying, okay, we're gonna write one about Jesus and then a sequel about Jesus through the church. That you have these two stories of ultimately having to do with the same resurrected Lord. It just happens to be that in the second book, the main character, the church, is the embodiment of Jesus on earth, right? The same spirit that hovered over Jesus in baptism when the spirit came down on Jesus and this voice from heaven said, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. The same spirit that does that comes down on the early church in Acts chapter two. And you have to kind of admit that it seems, well, same sort of stuff that happened to Jesus is happening in the church. I kind of wish I could have that similar experience of being baptized and having this voice from heaven say, you are my son, with you I'm well pleased, because all of my moments where I doubt God's existence would no longer exist if I heard that voice. Wouldn't it for you? The church is embodied with the same spirit that Jesus was embodied by. And that means, that implies that the same things that Jesus did, the church does. Luke was a doctor, which means he gives us all the details that nobody else does. Uh, Luke did not know Jesus personally. He was a traveling companion of Paul, and so he takes inordinate amounts of details. It's incredible because in Luke's gospel about Jesus, the first one, he tells all these stories of healing, of people being healed from blindness and sickness. I find that interesting coming from a doctor because in a way I wonder if this guy thought, well, Jesus at first, Jesus is kind of competition for my business. 
But then by the end of the story, you realize that he's like, ah, actually, I've been a doctor for 30 years. You ain't seen nothing like this sort of stuff. Along this story of the church being the embodiment of Jesus, Luke tells us these stories of the church enacting the kingdom of God in the same way that Jesus did. And we read this story about this young boy named Eutychus who fell out of a window and died in this killer sermon. What was the sermon about? I have to confess, I find it comforting to know that putting people to sleep in your sermon is biblical. There have been many moments in my 12 years of pastoral ministry that I have seen what I call the nod. And many of us have a theology of this. We turn it into an amen. That was good, man. I've put people to sleep in sermons before. And ultimately, the reason I think sometimes we put people to sleep in our sermons is ultimately a preacher doesn't have that much to talk about because our message is a message that gets kind of repetitory. I mean, the the Father, okay, we believe that Jesus, the gospel, that Jesus died. He resurrected from the grave for our sins. According to the scriptures, people saw him and now he is here in our midst and he offers all of us an opportunity into communion and, and, and relationality with God. And when you talk about this gospel all the time, there's, there's a part of me that almost comes to church as I preach. And I wanna say to you, I I wish I had more to talk about, but I don't. The only thing that that we have that really means anything is this incredibly repetitive message. Jesus died for you. I I preach a, a preach, I teach a preaching class, and I told my preaching class recently that a good preacher is nothing more than a used car salesman. That their job is to take really, really old stuff and just make it look good. (laughs) Look who's preaching in this story. A man by the name of Paul. Keep in mind, 13 chapters earlier, this was a man who was going out of his way. And actually, the text says that he was on his way to persecute a particular church, was on his way on the Damascus Road, and this voice spoke to him from heaven and said, why are you persecuting me? And it was the voice of Jesus calling Saul, who would become Paul, to follow him. I mean, imagine that. 13 chapters earlier, this guy was the greatest heretic in the history of Christianity. And 13 years later, he is preaching the message of the Jesus whom he was persecuting. I have had people say to me, AJ, I don't feel as though I have permission to preach the gospel of Jesus with the amount of sin and brokenness that is in my life. 
I just can't do it. If you knew my history and who I am, there's no way I should be able to preach. And my response to those people is, if a sinner can't preach the gospel, I don't know who's left. This is the story of a very broken human being who has been transformed by resurrection power. And here in this story, he is proclaiming this Jesus who has transformed who he is. He is a denier turned preacher. Which brings me back to the question of what was he preaching about? Now, I I think Luke, again, who was a doctor and gives us details in in sort of his own unique way, gives us some very incredible details about where this is taking place and how it's taking place. I want you to notice, first of all, that it happens on on the first day of the week. And in Christian history, we know that the first day of the week, Sunday, is the day that Christians would gather together and do what? Celebrate resurrection. And when they celebrate resurrection, they would break often two meals. They would have a first meal called the agape feast, which would basically be communion on steroids. They would have this huge, massive feast. And then at the end of the service, they would have another meal called the Eucharist or the communion. I love the way Paul preaches. He doesn't preach in three-point sermons. He preaches in two-meal sermons. (laughs) And I like that. I'm about the food. I believe Jesus and food can live in the same category. So we notice that they're celebrating on the first day of the week, the day that you celebrate resurrection. I want you to notice too, how many stories tall was this building? It was three. How many days was Jesus in the grave? Three. There's two meals again. I want to bring up this point. You notice... Jesus in the life of Jesus, his last meal really was what with his disciples? This was the last thing that Jesus enacted with his disciples was he was going to sit down and he was going to eat with them. The last supper, we call it. But what's beautiful about the life of Jesus is John 21 says that that wasn't the last meal Jesus shared with his disciples. Before Jesus is ascended into heaven, he sees his disciples on the beach and it says that he builds a fire and they have another meal because in Jesus' story, there's not just the last supper there's also the first breakfast. Two meals in this story. What happens in baptism? What do we do? We take people into the water. We put weird white robes on them. We dunk them down into the water and then we bring them back up out of the water. Notice in this story, Paul is upstairs. He goes downstairs, raises somebody, and then what? Goes back upstairs. All of the early church fathers, when they read this story, said this story is not about this boy named Eutychus. This story is about resurrection. This boy is an interesting boy, Eutychus. Interestingly enough, his name has a meaning both in Hebrew and in Greek. In Hebrew, his his name means uh, foolish one. In Greek, it means lucky one. Dead serious. His Hebrew friends thought that he was a moron, but his Greek friends thought he was super lucky. (laughs) He was a young boy, perhaps 12, 13 years old. Um, I find it incredibly comforting that there in the early church, that there were young children in the services. I think 
Oddly enough, and this may come as a surprise, I think that actually this story offers you and I, and I shared this with Kim Lawless, I think this offers us a phenomenal, phenomenal foundation for what children's ministry is all about. Children's ministry at the end of the day is about letting kids make really dumb mistakes and then being there for them when they hit rock bottom. I've never heard a kid say to me when I ask them, hey, when did you start following Jesus? I've never heard a kid say, well, it was after this perfect three-point sermon that Kim preached where I was eloquently and logically explained the resurrection power. You know what I have heard? I've heard kids say to me, how did you come to know Jesus? And they say, you know, I made a lot of mistakes when I was in college and my parents still loved me. I wonder if there's an element of ministry in this, that ministry is when we go to the people who have hit rock bottom and we choose to practice resurrection power by hugging them, physically, spiritually, you name it. I call it skin your knee discipleship. That when kids fall and make mistakes, that we're like Paul, we run downstairs and we hug them and we help them up. We have this miracle, miracle of a young boy being raised from the grave. I took time and read through a number of the miracles in the New Testament. What I found was many of the miracles were actually quite awkward. For instance, the moment Jesus encounters a blind man, the blind man says, I want to see. Jesus says, what do you want? I want to see Jesus. What does he do? The omnipotent, omni, omniscient, all the omnis. He has it down. He can do anything he wants. The man says, what do you, I want to see. And Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud and puts it on his eyes. And you know what the man is thinking. He's like, Seriously? You have all the power in the universe and you're spitting on me. Because, and I think that this is a part of Christianity that we need to understand. God reserves a right to do miracles the way he wants to do miracles. And it sometimes looks really weird. I find it interesting in the book of James, James says, when somebody is sick in the church, anoint them with oil But Jesus actually never said to anoint anybody with oil. And I think it's because Jesus taught people, he didn't teach people to spit on each other, but I think James was like, you know, Jesus did the whole spitting thing, but we're gonna transfer that into the oil thing so that people come back to church. (laughs) Because it would be awkward to say, turn to your neighbor and spit on them. You would definitely go church hopping at that point. Miracles are awkward. This is an awkward miracle. Think about the guts of Paul in this moment. The boy dies. He runs downstairs, and you don't get a sense that there's any guarantee that by running and jumping on this kid that he's guaranteed a miracle. There's no guarantee of a miracle. In fact, imagine how awkward it would have been if the boy didn't raise from the grave. Paul, what are you doing running and jumping on that child like that? It take and oh man, my goodness gracious! I, I, an element of this whole story is that a part of being a resurrected person is that you bank on resurrection. 
that you put yourself in positions, you allow yourself to be in places where the only hope you have is resurrection. Some of us are so afraid to gamble something in our life, to risk something in our life, because we're afraid that God can't provide resurrection power. I don't mean this in a mean way, but you're not acting in faith. If Jesus isn't acting you to do or be something, my friends, you believe in resurrection. <laughs> Some of my friends, I have academic Christian friends who don't believe it. It's at, it's at all possible that Jonah could actually be in the fish for three days. There's no way. It doesn't make any sense. He can't live in there. And when my friends, my Christian friends who say Jonah couldn't be a real story, I look at them and I laugh and I say, dude, you believe in resurrection. You believe somebody raised out of the grave, they were dead and aren't anymore, and you don't believe that could happen? If you believe in resurrection, anything is possible. A.W. Tozer said about Jonah, he would have believed it if, the, if Jonah would have swallowed the fish. When you believe in resurrection, when you are Easter people, when you believe that the Christ that we speak of did die but came out, it puts all of our stupid worries about bills into context. And it puts our weird worries about how we're going to provide for our families and how we're going to do this or do that or how we're going to get this thing done or that thing done. I remind you, we are in Easter people. Miracles happen the way God wants these miracles to happen, and ultimately, this isn't the first time in the Bible that a holy person hugs a corpse. First Kings chapter 17, Elijah goes to a widow's home. The widow says, Elijah, my son is dead. Elijah, a prophet, runs upstairs. Hugs the boy who is dead and cold. And God raises him from the grave. Elijah had a disciple by the name of Elisha. Elisha, 2 Kings 4, goes to a widow's home. The widow says, my son is dead. Elisha goes upstairs, hugs the boy, cries out to God. The boy wakes up. And I love the story in the Elisha text because it says, then the boy sneezed. There is something prophetic about hugging a corpse.
It was this summer. My wife and I performed this ceremony, this wedding ceremony for two friends of ours, Nita and Aaron Stockwell, great friends, people who go to our church. They wanted to have this ceremony at the beach because the beach is awesome in the summer in Oregon, but not any other time. (laughs) We have a spot next to Lincoln City. We have a small embankment next to the beach set aside for us. And we are going to have the ceremony. Maybe 150 people come to the ceremony. And my wife and I are going to perform the ceremony. They come forward. So we're there. And one thing we had failed to do was think about who else would be on the beach on a sunny Oregon day. We arrive to do the wedding, and there are no less than 2,000 people on the beach. So we decide we need to move forward, so we set up the the ceremony area where you set up the chairs, you do the thing, and with the, our backs to the beach. It was gorgeous, it was just gorgeous. And we begin the ceremony, 150 of us, they're standing there, and, and I notice, and you gotta just put on your imaginary brains, imaginary brains. You have to imagine that that word actually exists in the dictionary. Imaginary brains. You have to imagine we're standing there, and all of, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, all of these people from the beach walk up to the edge of the wedding ceremony. I distinctly remember a guy standing right over here with a pair of underwear on and a pack of PBR beer. (laughs) And I'm looking at him and in my mind, I'm thinking this is going to be either a moment of catastrophe or brilliant ministry. So I decide in this moment, okay, what are we gonna do? And by the time the ceremony started, no less than 300 people who were not invited to this wedding are standing on the corners of this ceremony watching. So I decide in a pastoral moment of brilliance that I was going to invite these people to the wedding on the spot. So I say, welcome to the wedding, especially to those of you who weren't expecting to be here today. Welcome. The ceremony begins and I, my sermon, I remember distinctly what the sermon was about. It was about this moment in my marriage where Quinn and I were driving down the road and it was, we were driving to this horrible meeting that we had to go to and we both felt like Jesus was, was literally with us in our car, that he was his presence. So I said into the mic, I said, I said, because sometimes in marriage, Jesus is in your car. And we continue with the ceremony. And they wanted to end the ceremony by washing each other's feet, which is beautiful. Usually we do communion, but they wanted to wash each other's feet. So we get out of the way and they walk up and they begin to wash each other's feet. And everybody is, I mean, very touched by this. The ceremony ends and I'm walking away and I turn around and look. And my wife, who is the children's pastor at the church that I pastor, I turn around to look And there are no less than 50 kids who have all rushed to my wife and are asking her, why did they baptize, why did they wash each other's feet? Now my wife, who is filled with the Holy Spirit more than most, at that very moment turns into, in that second, into Billy Graham. (laughs) 
And she senses this is a moment where Jesus is there and there's things, and the kids, and I'm listening, the kids are saying, why did you baptize each other's, why did they wash each other's feet? And my wife is like, well, because Jesus came and washed our feet and because we go and we wash their feet. And my wife is like, do you believe that? And they're like, yeah, we can believe that. That's pretty cool that God would do that. My wife's like, yeah, that's a pretty good thing. And I'm standing there and I'm watching and I'm thinking to myself, this is a moment where the Holy Spirit is just like throwing like a softball and it's like unbelievable and all of this time I come to the realization my friends that the greatest moments in ministry happen when we're not that the greatest moments in ministry are when I am completely banking on resurrection a guy came up to me afterwards and said that the washing of the feet was huge for him. And I said, how did you even find us? And he said he was walking through the forest and he heard somebody say on a loudspeaker that Jesus was in his car. You can't resurrect anybody. And you can't fix anybody. You cannot lead your neighbors to repentance. You cannot fix this world. But the great news is you don't have to because the one who lives in you is really good at that stuff. Christians are called to hug corpses. We are called to find the dead things in this world. We don't need to preach sermons at them. We need to run at them and hug them. If your marriage is falling apart, your marriage does not need another sermon. It needs somebody who has a resurrection power living in them to go and hug it. If your child went off to college and left every aspect of faith that you put into them, when they come home for Thanksgiving, don't preach them a sermon, hug them. If you're frustrated and cynical about church, Jesus doesn't need more cynical people. He needs people with resurrection power in them to hug. If your friend, your father, your mother, your brother, your sister are so distant from God, you have absolutely no idea how in the world to help them. My friends, you can't. All you can do is hug them and believe that the tomb is 